Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in. Taking land, sea, children and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite ongoing colonisation, 60,000 years of wisdom continues. And so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today I am talking with Zaki Haidari and Dr. Anthea Vogel on Australia's immigration system and the use of the quote-unquote code of behaviour. Zaki is a 2020 Australian Human Rights Commission Human Rights Hero, an ambassador for the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, and works at Amnesty International as a refugee rights campaigner. Zaki himself is a refugee, having fled Afghanistan after being targeted to be killed by the Taliban and has survived a terrifying boat journey to Australia in 2012. Despite this and a range of social, legal and financial obstacles, he has thrived. He learned English and he's become a well-known and respected human rights advocate speaking about the cruelty inherent in Australia's refugee system. Anthea is a senior lecturer at the UTS Faculty of Law. Her work takes a a critical and interdisciplinary approach to the regulation of migrants and and what's sometimes called um, non-citizens, with lots of uh, that research falling within refugee, migration and administrative law and theory. She's one of very few Australian researchers to highlight the issues in the Code of Behaviour. So let's take a step back. In 2013, the then Minister for Immigration, Scott Morrison, introduced a code of behaviour for asylum seekers released from detention. In order to be released from detention, asylum seekers had to sign this code. The code contains obligations on asylum seekers that both duplicate and exceed the criminal law. So these include requiring people not to make uh, sexual contact with another person without their consent, that's already reflected in law, to obey existing laws, uh, well that's clearly already in law, um, and undefined conduct like to, to not engage in, and I quote, antisocial or disruptive activities that are inconsiderate, disrespectful, or threaten the peaceful enjoyment of other members of the community, end quote. So, you know, things like uh, possibly advocating for your human rights. If you're found by the department to have breached any of these conditions, you can have your welfare taken or be put back in onshore or offshore detention. All of these provisions are part of what's called refugee or administrative law. They have all the flavor, though, and consequences of criminal law, but without any of the checks and balances before courts. Zaki has lived this, and Anthea has researched this. Anthea's research reveals all of these features in more depth, and we'll talk about that, but also that non-governmental organizations are being co-opted into acting as 
kind of police or surveillance officers of refugees and, and migrants. We enter a new Albanese government with new ministers for immigration and home affairs. This code was written with a ministry pencil and it can be erased uh, at a minister's discretion. So please consider writing to your local MP and the ministers for immigration and home affairs to have this inhumane code removed immediately. And a final message from me that this episode will be the last episode for the foreseeable future. I have loved and cherished the opportunity to connect with and learn from folks, um, but I simply don't have the time to to do the prep and the production work involved um, as my other work heats up. I hope the 32 episodes have revealed to you how regulation does in fact shape our lives in just and unjust, equal and unequal ways. If this is the first episode you've listened to, I encourage you to go back and listen to others, particularly those uh, with those who are speaking from their lived experience. So I hope you enjoy this final episode. Take care. Um, all right, comrades. Well, lovely to, lovely to have you both here, um, Zaki and, and Anthea. Um, the first question of this podcast is always, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? So Zaki, I thought I'd start with you. Thank you, and thanks uh, for having me. Um, um, why it's important to me, and particularly to refugee community, is because it has taken our civil rights away from us. As a human being living on, on the country that prides itself uh, on uh, championing democracy and human rights, um, at the same time, a cohort of people, because of uh, the way they arrived in this country and their visa type, uh, this code was designed and implemented on this core of people to dehumanize them. Not only that, but to sort of silence their voice um, from media, from the public, uh, to punish them more, but to quiet them so they can get go out and ask for help or tell people who they are, what's going on in their country, what sort of support they need while they're in Australia struggling with your um, legal challenges, but also daily lives. I mean, Zach, it's um, horrible to hear that because, you know, when, when we talk about why regulation matters with other people in this, in this podcast, they talk about regulation being needed to make a fairer society, but it sounds like it's doing the exact opposite in this case. And so I'm wondering, Anthea, how do you, how do you understand and respond to that question as well? Yeah, I mean, I think... Thinking about regulation, it's kind of why does regulation matter to you? And um, it's kind of a question of like when when doesn't regulation matter? Um, for a lawyer and a legal academic, I probably take a very broad and non-doctrinal approach to what regulation is. Mm. Uh, and in line with Zaki, in relation to the kinds of work that I do around the regulation of borders and regulation of race and migration, um, it's very hard um, not to understand regulation in its most expansive sense as kind of forms of social control and social power. And certainly for refugees and asylum seekers in Australia, regulation has always kind of acted as a, a blunt form of social control, social exclusion and punishment. Um, and so in this sense, regulation matters because of the way it has really been used to achieve really punitive aims for refugees and asylum seekers in Australia, I think. I might add to that as well, like the way it's named, code of behavior, right? So when you read 
And when you process what it means to someone that applies to them, code of behavior is basically, I have the power, this big institution, and you are nobody. I tell you how to behave in a society. You don't have the right to behave the way you would like to behave as a normal human being. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I came in place with massive power and tell you how to behave. Um, and it, it, it just the name of it and the way it applies to people. It's 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 um, I think uh, it's just crazy. Yeah, it sounds very dehumanizing as well to, to me, Zaki. And I suppose, you know, uh, so we, we're jumping now to, to the code of behavior, which is kind of the, one of the central issues that, that we're talking about here today. And, um, you know, so I was, I was born um, in, in Barnes, Queensland. And so, you know, for a lot of people who are born in Australia, we kind of assume a bunch of different rights. So, you know, the right to free speech, freedom of movement, freedom of who we associate with, and that, you know, those things shouldn't, um, uh, you know, shouldn't impact, uh, those shouldn't be limited arbitrarily by government. Um, that's my experience generally of, of, of Australia. You know, there's odd bits and bobs that aren't great, but generally that's my experience of, of Australia. But I get the impression from you that we have different experiences of, of Australia. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that and, and this code of behaviour that you mentioned. Yeah, look, I think a lot of refugees are escaping their countries, leaving their countries because of the regime. Because, for example, in Iran or in Afghanistan, the current regime tells people how to behave and how to uh, act, who to talk to, how to present yourself in media, how to express your opinion. And that what what... What puts me ashamed is that uh, we, you know, we were forced to leave our countries because of those reasons, and seek protection because our life were in danger because of the same, you know, uh, thinking and 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 the way that we were forced to behave, and a lot of refugees are end up being in Australia because of those reasons that they couldn't express their opinion, they couldn't express. Uh, uh, you know how how they feel you know and now here we are in australia uh, and we are forced by a, a, by a code to sign to say okay i know that you were forced to leave your country because of your opinion because of your values but you're in here now and we want you to still follow what we tell you yeah. you're not allowed you're not allowed to express your opinion you're not allowed to behave certain ways that you would like to behave you're not allowed to talk to your neighbors. You're not allowed to talk to media because we don't want you to do that. Given the fact that a lot of refugees were forced from their countries to leave for these reasons, ending up in Australia, now we are facing this code of behavior and we have been living with this for the past 10 years. So where else can we go to express ourselves? Where can we go and, and express our opinion because we believe in democracy. We believe that every human being does have a right to express what they believe in, to express their opinion. Although it might, it might not be aligned with, with, uh, with you or with someone else that is sitting next to them. But as a human being, I think that's our right to express of how we feel, what we think. And I think that, has take, that, that basic human right has been taken away from people. First, 
in their own country. Second, the country that they're seeking protection for the same reasons is, yeah, that's how I feel that it applies to refugees, in particular pe people seeking asylum. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's it's not lost on me and it wouldn't be lost on, on many of the, the listeners, um, uh, you know, that this is not an easy thing to talk about, Zaki. So I, I just want to personally say thank you um, um, and, and acknowledge that. Um, you know, I mean, it sounds to me, I don't know, I don't know if this is an Australian saying, but, you know, jumping out of the fry pan into the fire, you know, it doesn't sound like it's gotten, you know, um, this is not the ending that I'm sure a lot of people imagined when they made a treacherous um, journey to, to, to leave a dangerous country, um, whatever that might be, or dangerous situation is probably a better way to put that. Um, Anthea, you've actually done a, a, we, you know, we connected because you've, you've done a lot of work in this space and, and I'm wondering, you know, what are, what are your concerns about this, this code of behaviour um, and how it's, um, how it's been rolled out? Yeah, thanks, Simon, and thanks, Zaki. I, I would absolutely concur with the kind of the irony of the, the code of behaviour operating um, for people seeking asylum, often on the basis of their political opinion. And, and Zaki would know this better than I do, but, you know, the, the preface to the code is about asylum seekers agreeing that they will abide by all Australian values. But then, of course, the value that the code, the values that the code articulates are ones of explicit discrimination against a group mm -hmm. of people that quite openly, the government's own human rights compatibility statement about the code um, points out that it breaches the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights because it breaches asylum seekers' rights to engage in political activity and freedom of um, political association. And, and yet <laughs> they're signing a code which says that they will abide by Australian values, which happen to be the values that are expressed in the code. Um, look, it, I've done some work on the code alongside my very good friend and colleague, Dr Elise Methvin, who's also at the UTS Faculty of Law. And, I mean, I think Zaki's already pointed out the really disturbing content of the code. Mm. Uh, it's quite shocking that the, the code exists as a, as a piece of regulation. And for listeners who might not have had a look at it, I mean, one of the, the code has six expectations and one of them says that asylum seekers must not, and I'm quoting now, harass, intimidate or bully any other person or group of people or engage in antisocial or disruptive activities that are inconsiderate, disrespectful or threaten the peaceful enjoyment of other members of the community. And in the government's own explanatory statement about the code, that's described to include things like spitting, swearing, and persistently irritating other people. So asylum seekers have, uh, who have to sign the code then live under this instrument, which not only is, I mean, its terms are incredibly criminalising and dehumanising, but they can potentially capture anything you do in your day. <laughs> There's nothing that the code doesn't cover uh, in terms of the way it, it acts as a tool of regulation and the, the punishments, so-called under the code, um, include an immediate kind of cancellation of your visa and return to detention. So they're the stakes of this tool of kind of constant surveillance and, and, and criminalisation of asylum seekers who have been let out of detention. Uh, and I guess the other kind of big, there are, there are a couple of other concerns about the code. We might come to the kind of reporting practices soon, but the procedural aspects of the code are incredibly concerning. So, you know, in Australia, again, um, the code says that asylum seekers can't breach 
criminal laws. But of course, they can't do that anyway. Anyone living in Australia, regardless of their visa status, are governed by Australian laws. Uh, but what we have here is a code which, uh, in, in the case of an allegation that an asylum seeker has breached the code, uh, the department determines that allegation, but the burden of the pr proof is on the asylum seeker to say, um, this is why the allegation that I have engaged in criminal activity is or isn't correct. So that presumption of innocence that we all are quite familiar with, even those um, people who might not be criminal lawyers, uh, is denied to asylum seekers and the way in which the code operates and any form of procedural fairness in terms of the way in which the, the code is adjudicated or breaches under the code of adjudicators are just gone. So not only are these really broad terms, but I think anyone living under the code knows that there's just fundamental lack of any form of procedural justice if you're alleged to have breached the code. Um, and then there are some reporting requirements that we can talk about a little bit more. But I mean, I think it's it's really important that the code seems like a, a rhetorical tool, you know, it seems like a, a way to criminalise asylum seekers um, for the for the benefit of the broader community in terms of the way it operates politically. But um, it has, you know, kind of it's it's its effect is a, a very day to day effect in terms of the way in which people are forced to live under this this instrument of regulation. Yeah, and, and I, I might stay with you, Anthony, and then jump to, to Zaki. But, you know, you, you identify there that, you know, the, the reporting requirements here, you know, so we, we know that, I guess, the laws or the regulations is, um, are unjust um, and they're not fair and they're very vague and they could include everything. But then there is a bit of a, an Orwellian kind of um, system of monitoring people and, uh, and the reporting um, and who's reporting on people. And that's something that you've touched on. I'd be really keen to get, um, uh, you know, your your findings on that and then jump to, to Zaki as well and, and get his perspectives. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so we, uh, a, a few years ago now, through Freedom of Information, sought some information about how the code was operating because... Um, as we've talked about, the, the code has really flown under the radar and there isn't publicly available data about how the, the department is monitoring and, and dealing with allegations. Uh, and the code itself doesn't say who should report people under the code, but the department uh, stated in this freedom of information request response that it expected to receive allegations from members of the public, so anyone, um, service providers, police services and other government agencies. Um, listeners may or may not know that most welfare and support services to people living on bridging visas in Australia are provided via outsourced um, non-government organisations. So the government outsources the provision of welfare under um, what's called the uh, SRSS program. Under that program, uh, in order to receive government funding that is then kind of distributed in, in the form of welfare to bridging visa holders, and, and I might say on very limited kind of conditions, uh, the particular NGOs must agree to report breaches of the code of behaviour to the government. And so what our research found in looking at how allegations of breaches under the code were coming to the Department of Immigration, um, we looked at about 500 allegations under the code and 68% of those were coming from the welfare organisations that had been contracted to support asylum seekers and provide welfare support and services. Uh, and, and that was a mandatory condition of their contracts. And of course, 
you know, welfare organisations are stepping into the vacuum of assistance that the government has created. So the, the government, in, in our research, I guess we argue that this is another way to co-opt another layer of, of organisations and non-governmental organisations into policing and punishing asylum seekers. So uh, in making these NGOs, which are, you know, they're humanitarian and they aim to assist asylum seekers, partners in immigration control, the code is used to create yet, as I said, another layer of, um, of surveillance and, and punishment from the welfare organisations that were uh, understood by asylum seekers. And I think many, uh, uh, Zach, you could speak to this, I think asylum seekers understand often that their NGOs are in, are not are, are working at least, are at least contracted by government, um, but they're, they're sources of assistance, but of course also policing. Hideous, hideous, Anthea, and it's it's um, uh, an absolute capturing of the NGO sector, um, and um, yeah, in the in 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 an area where we need more civil society oversight than um, than anywhere else. And, and Zaki, is that something that you're seeing in this space? So you know, there's there's this uh, you know these services that that are here to help you, but they're also here to, well, not just you, but the community, uh, 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 but they're ultimately serving as a surveillance or enforcement kind of mechanism. Well, I mean, what are you seeing in your work and, and, and your experiences? Well, um, I didn't know this and it came to me as a surprise now, but I knew that, that the caseworker were reporting to the immigration, but I didn't know how much detail you know, and it's it's shocking to me that these organizations that were contracted to look after the welfare of refugees and people seeking asylum at the same time spy on their activities. This is shocking because asylum seekers are very vulnerable. When they leave their country, then they go through the whole, you know, traveling bit to get to a Australia and then they go to detention center by the time they're out in the community emotionally they're broken often they don't have any support that includes family friends and the only person that they they, they, they trust and rely is your caseworker the social mm -hmm. caseworker they are the person that will take them from the airport to the motel or hotel help them to settle in and they became very close to them but what is shocking now to hear the same people that you know thousands of refugees trusted with everything they were the one that spy on them and also reported to immigration why it's shocking to me is because a lot of friends that I know and people that I know, they, they, they really trusted on their caseworker. They were saying mm -hmm. they're helping me to find volunteering position, to find me study or, you know, English classes and blah, blah, list goes on. But at the same time, I did receive a call from my caseworker at the time saying, if you get reached out by media, do not talk to them, mm -hmm. tell them to contact us. Mm -hmm. And as means that they, them and, and the big institution, which is Australian government. Mm. Um, but I think this shows um, the code of behavior, not only um, 
has taken the, the, the human rights away from the asylum seeker, but also it has bridged your confidentiality to, yeah. you know, to spy on someone, you, you literally bridging, you know, your, your confidence. Uh, I don't know the, the, the right terms and in, 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 in the law in India would know that, but you bridging that, you know, the, the confident confidentiality of someone that is trusting, you know, to you mm-hmm. and your organization with, with, with your life. And you spying on them, that's, that's very cruel. And that's, um, I hope that those organizations should be ashamed of themselves by not telling uh, people that they serve, mm. money that they receive to serve these people, to tell them that we are spying on you. Mm. Be, careful of your, be careful of your action, be careful of your steps that you're taking. Don't, you know, tell us what you're doing. Yeah. Where did you go? Because hmm. often you go in, with, you go in because we used to go in every three months, sit with our caseworker, tell them what we have done, where we, where we, we know which places did we go, because we feel that they're, you know, they're happy to hear our stories and to see that we are settling in well, um, you know, engagement that we had with people, with communities. We used to tell those all. But now that we know that this all were reported to immigration, it's I don't. It's just shocking to me, and I think you know it's 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 beyond it's beyond um, beyond my belief that how um, how much uh, um, you know control they had on people's life and how much information they has taken they have taken away from us and unnecessary mm. like what. Mm. I would add to that, Zaki, kind of echoing exactly your concerns. I mean, one of the fundamental problems with this kind of outsourcing is that if asylum seekers and refugees were speaking directly with the department, so if the department was providing welfare services as it had in the past and, and does in certain circumstances, of course you're aware that you are dealing with the same organization mm. an arm of government that has the power to re-detain you and has mm. direct control over your lives and that mm. is also unjust and, mm. and also problematic but I think the, the reality that as Zaki has pointed out the, the single source of welfare of support of, of resettlement assistance um, for bridging visa particular bridging visa holders comes via these organizations and there's no sense um, there's often no sense of the ways in which these reporting requirements are operating and 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 the ways in which th- those sites of kind of contact are also sites of um, surveillance and and potential reporting and 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 another part of this and this is kind of work uh, there's some great work by uh, the criminologist Leanne Weber uh, and also Rebecca Powell they've talked about the, the ways in which this can create I mean, it can be a side of solidarity, so there can be a, a decision not to report or an exercise of discretion not to do that. So obviously not all organisations and caseworkers necessarily engage in this. But at the same time, the problem here is that there's another side of control and discretion for asylum seekers who, whose lives are already completely um, constrained and controlled by an, uh, our, our government that has a government or successive governments that have been intent on punishing asylum seekers who live in the community or who arrive in Australia. So I think 
even though the discretion might not be exercised in a, in a directly punitive way or, or there might be moments for solidarity and resistance, at the same time, the power is there to, to exercise that control, which is, um, is, I think, absolutely by design from um, consecutive governments in terms of how regimes like this operate. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the fact that your humanity can be taken away from you um, in, in quite simple ways. And, and, yeah, I mean, you highlight there, there's just so many stages in which there's moral failings when I hear this. So, like, I, I hear, you know, there's, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I, I hear the bulk of the moral responsibility sitting with governments that have set up this framework and, 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 and sort of, um, uh, you know, made, made NGOs perform that function. But then there's um, these kind of questions that the NGOs really have to ask themselves. And for me, I hear three. I mean, one is, um, why did you accept the money? Um, you know, um, when you knew that this was a condition um, of the contract. And maybe there are reasons to accept it, um, but that's a moral question and that's one that needs to be engaged with. Why don't people like Zaki know their rights and know that they're being subject to surveillance? Um, I don't think there's any really way, any way around, um, you know, making sense of that in a, moral, in a moral way. And then the third is what do you do when, um, when something might, quote unquote, I don't know, reflect, um, uh, you know, reflect an issue under the code of behaviour and, you know, you know there that there are moments for solidarity and whatnot or, um, you know, uh, sort of taking, I guess, a, a more sort of anti-oppressive approach. But I don't know what any of you think about that, but that's those are questions that I think that all stakeholders should be asking themselves. Yeah, I think it's, it's a moral is a key every human being we all have our values and our moral and we act in certain ways because often things that we face is not aligned with our values and our moral mm. you know and i don't blame each individual caseworker mm. that has worked in the sector for the past 10 years um what are what are well, again I blame the institutions, the government that forced people, mm. you know, to <laughs> to behave again in a way that they're giving them money and basically buying them, saying you don't receive funding if you don't follow the way we tell you or the way we ask you to behave. So we only our funding is conditional based on this you know, conditions. Um, I'm sure that um, there's a lot of uh, caseworkers today out there feeling awful about this because I'm sure uh, a lot of the caseworkers taking up these roles, um, hoping that they can help refugees and asylum seekers that are coming here seeking protection, that are here, that they don't have friends and families, that they, they that they will help them. They're here, need assistance with the settlement. Those are values that they're taking on. And often, you know, I think there is a conflict between their values and, and moral. Um, so I'm not I'm not saying it's based on the caseworker individual, mm -hmm. but I, I do blame organizations that are receiving funding. They should, you know, they should have stood up then saying this is not right. This is Australia. And we are speaking and we are talking about human beings. You know, they're not animals. 
that they should behave the way we want to behave. They're not like pets that we advise, we tell them sit and stand up and mm-hmm. feed them, right? Mm-hmm. They're human beings. They mm-hmm. should have stood up at least saying, this is not right. Yeah. We're not accepting any you know, money to assist, to assist them if, if these conditions come down to, to questions our moral and values that we stand on. Um, that's how I, I, I feel that you know, things should have taken. Yeah. Anthea, did you have anything to add, add on? Yeah. No, I just think that's a really powerful capturing of the systemic ways in which this operates and and the fact that that contradiction between kind of care and control is, is part of how the, the system works. It creates this inhuman and 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 kind of absolutely dehumanizing reliance. You know, this primary Zaki, when you said, you know, you that, that sense that they would even accept that there's a code of behaviour operating which characterises people as something uh, far less than human and, and subject to the, the terms of the code of behaviour. From that point of acceptance onwards, you're already in this incredibly um, uh, foully kind of power differential operating between the service providers and, and, and the asylum seekers, which already existed in the code as uh, just another form of, of both dehumanising kind of rhetoric but also actual power over the way in which people can live their lives. Yeah, and, and certainly, I, I, you know, that, that, in, that link between care and control is something that sits across lots of systems um, in our community, um, but I think probably more, more acutely in the immigration system than, than anywhere else because there is just such profound unregulated power um, uh, with those ministers. And so, uh, you know, we've sort of started to move towards, well, what does this mean, you know, m- more broadly? So what, do you, what lessons do you take or what do you think this reveals um, about our um, broader immigration system? I might start with, with you, Zaki. I think people that are listening to us today tells a lot. And there are things that I didn't know. You know, and I think as an Australian, we should sit and go through this information and reflect and then ask questions from ourselves. What sort of country do we want to live in? Mm. What sort of government do we want to have? Um, How do we care for someone that is living next door or someone that is your friend? Um, living with you uh, or, or just normal human beings, someone that is walking on the streets, someone that was forced to leave their countries, their countries based on their opinion and values that are here now. Although this is Australia, the same regime applies to them. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the, those are the questions that I would ask every individual that is living in Australia or Australian citizen, or even human being, mm-hmm. should ask ourselves that: um, Do we sit and 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 see more people going through this systematic uh, damaging uh, that is damaging humans? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people that are in our society, um, or you know, should we take an action saying this is not right? If this applies today to asylum seeker, this power will shift automatically to other god of society mm. and then do we just 
accept that, that it's okay. If it, it happened to, to, to the asylum seeker and refugees now, it's, 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 it's next to someone else, another marginalized part of our community. You know, mm. I think it, it's injustice and it has to, it should stop, not only that, but, but people that were involved in the process of developing this kind of behavior, uh, you know, organization that applied this code of behavior should say sorry to individuals, individuals that, you know, uh, ha- have gone through this process and experienced the inhuman systematic punishment. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And these are profound questions that we as a community need to take and, and a personal responsibility to ask these questions ourselves. And I mean, those are crucial questions. I'm wondering what, what are the lessons from uh, for you, Anthea, about, I mean, what what does all of this tell you about law regulation in our immigration system? What do you take away from 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 what this is telling us? Yeah, I, I guess as a as a broader point and really following on from Zaki's point that uh, part of examining, say, the code of behavior, which is one instrument in this broad regime of deterrence and and refugee and asylum seeker policy is thinking about how this fits in with Australian politics more broadly and and how other members of the community are treated and broader questions of justice. And I think one thing that uh, came out in this research is thinking about Australia's long history of governments and charitable and religious organisations implementing racialised controls, indeed taking children from their families in the name of care and protection. And so I think in some ways thinking really carefully about how discourses of welfare and care have played a central role in the dispossession of Indigenous people and claims to sovereignty made by um, a settler colonial government um, is really useful to kind of think about, well, well, what is going on in in these racialised forms of border control in the code of behaviour and characterising asylum seekers who arrive by boaters being need to sign a code of behaviour even though they're already subject to Australian law, which says things like, don't don't be antisocial and and we didn't talk about this and it's you know incredibly disturbing and offensive but you know don't make um uh you can't make sexual contact with people without their consent so we really see that combination of racialized forms of control existing alongside what is called care and welfare and for me i think that's a really important thing to think about more broadly and i mean in, in relation to australian refugee policy one thing I think in our struggles for kind of justice and and um, and in solidarity with refugees and asylum seekers, um, in some ways we focused a lot on detention and the harms of detention, and, and it's absolutely the case that Australian immigration detention centres have caused untold amounts of harm and and uh, punished asylum seekers from 1992 onwards um, and before that as well, even when it wasn't mandatory. But I think looking at the ways in which the Australian government has really implemented forms of punishment and harm for asylum seekers in the community and and thinking about how to um, uh, engage with, understand and then protest and resist those forms of harm is really important. And and I know we spoke a little bit, we've all spoken a little bit about the connection between, say, temporary protection and things like the code of behaviour, but Mm -hmm. the ways in which uh, refugees who have been, say, released from detention are still being excluded by the Australian government, I think is something to take from these discussions. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I don't know, it's interesting hearing you both talk about this because there are um, 
systemic issues and you sort of you know, oh, um historic well current and historical issues or history playing out in the present um uh, around um colonialism racialization um and and the um yeah discriminatory regulation of particular communities for the benefit of other particular communities um but i don't i often my, my reflection is we often uh have uh, talk don't connect that to our personal responsibilities, um, which is, you know, what Zaki was talking talking about. So how do we connect those broad broad conversations to our daily practice? Um, because what I see often is people just almost evade personal responsibility by just talking about broader themes um, disconnected from what they do and what they can do in their daily practice. Um, and that, so I hope that doesn't come across as, Thing I um, don't like. Uh, we do live in a settler colonial state, but what does that mean for you today? You know, as you leave the house and, and your personal responsibility to advocate on things. I'm not sure um, what you think about that, Zaki, and then uh, or Anthea. Yeah, and, and I think I just reflect on that before. I think it's a question uh, that every individual needs to ask ourselves, saying. What sort of society do we want to live? You know, do we want to call ourselves Australia that is pride uh, ourselves on human rights, democracy, uh, and freedom of speech? But then, at the same time, are these values or being practiced, or people in in different studies do have access to those values to practice, or those you know those. Uh, um, values that they carry, can they, they practice? But also it's about equality. You know, are we equal? Mm -hmm. It's a question that every human being that do resist in Australia or reside in Australia, are they equal? Mm -hmm. If not, you know, it's not just asylum seekers and refugees. You know, we have Aboriginal people and people with colour. Mm -hmm. Do they feel equal? Mm -hmm. If not, how can we, as an individual, how, oh, it is our responsibility. If I'm experiencing this, if, if I'm experiencing discrimination, can I stand up? But as an Australian, are we mature enough to support those who are standing up for what's right mm -hmm. and for what they're going through? You know, if, if I'm not a a refugee, if I'm not a person with, uh, you know, people from the uh, migrant or refugee background, can I support them when they are standing up saying, this is what, I, this is what I'm experiencing and it's not okay, you know? Can I stand with them in solidarity? But go a step beyond that. Can you stand with them to advocate for what's right? Because at the end of the day, you're human, they're human. Mm -hmm. And what is right, what rights you have as a human being, they should have the same rights. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how I see it. Yeah. Did you, thank you, Zaki. Did you have anything to... to I'd just add that, like, practically, I think, absolutely asking those questions and and thinking what that might entail for you or what, what, that, mean, what, what that might mean for... Um, the choices you make and and uh, what you choose to engage in and what you choose to say uh, ignore or engage or kind of allied in some way or another. Uh, but yeah. I, I mean, and this is kind of just a, a credit to Zaki and his amazing work and all that he has 
kind of been doing in the community, I would also add that part of that process is kind of engaging with, with the community. If, if, if you aren't an asylum seeker or refugee or indeed if you're doing what Zaki says, which is, you know, that isn't your community, but you can see that there's an injustice or a form of discrimination, it's about, um, you know, listening carefully and letting that question of like, well, what is the injustice here and what are people actually experiencing being led by members of those communities and, and by listening to them understanding, I mean, I think the code of behaviour is a really clear example that people are uh, experiencing things that you may have no, had no idea about or thought you understood, but in fact didn't. Uh, and listening to those kind of uh, voices and that expertise uh, in thinking about how you might structure your own response or your behaviour, I think that's another kind of big lesson that comes out of, of um, some of these conversations. Yeah, absolutely, Anthea. We don't need more more saviors. You know, um, we um, <laughs> we can um, we can uh, be led by the people who are closest to the issue. Um, and so, I'm just wondering briefly, from your perspectives, are there any like you know preliminary, um, short or long term solutions? Um, you know, to, we can say to immigration policy or to this code of behaviour. And um, whoever wants to go first, there. Oh, we, was, Zaki and I were just chatting about this, and and I think, I mean, in some in some ways, it's a very practical and uh, straightforward <laughs> first thing to say, which uh, never goes astray. Uh, yeah, we're recording this not not too many weeks out from a federal election, and uh, the new Labor government, which has come to power, hasn't made clear what their intentions are around the code of behaviour. They've they've made clear. Um, that they will uh, wind back or get rid of temporary protection visas and return to permanent protection. But the code of behaviour isn't attached to the kind of the legislative regime which governs temporary protection in Australia. So I think a very practical and important thing is to think about um, what advocacy might look like in terms of pointing out uh, the ways in which the code of behaviour needs to be part of the package of reform that the Labor government commits to winding back uh, and that, that would include uh, the cross-branch and uh, maybe independent members of parliament who might not know about the code of behaviour to see if uh, we might be able to get rid of it as, as part of some of the reforms the Labor government has committed to. Yeah, and no, I want to honour that um, you've done a lot of work in this to put this on the agenda, Anthea, as well. Um, uh, and um, I didn't know about this prior to, to reading and, and hearing about your work. Um, Zaki, uh, are there thoughts that you had in terms of um, policy kind of solutions? You can talk more generally about policy or more specifically about um, the code of behaviour. Yeah, I second uh, Antti on that. I think it's, it's, a, it's an easy fix. Uh, if you go in history, uh, the whole immigration policy, at least in the past 10 years, always have been harsh and always have been added on and on and on multiple layers of punishment yeah. to asylum seeker. And code of behavior is one of them, you know? And I, I think uh, we, I, I think it's time for, for Labor government to acknowledge the punishment, multiple layer of punishment on asylum seeker and refugees. And it's time to fix those suffering. We, it has been going for too long. 10 years of emotional suffering on any human being is a long time. Mm. And I, I really do hope that the Labour government do acknowledge the suffering that has been going for this long and fixing it, you know, layer by layer, the way it was implemented from the beginning. Mm. And to do that is to removing at least the easy fix 
For example, mm. code of behavior doesn't need to go to parliament. Mm. A minister do have power to remove this and make mm. people feel, you know, free. Mm. And you're, you're free. You're an you, you have the same right as an Australian person. You can express your opinion. You know, and this code, code of behavior doesn't apply to you. We don't, we don't control your behavior anymore. You know, as long as you uh, obey Australian law, you're okay as a normal citizen. You don't need to have an extra layer of behavior, code of behavior. You know, things like this could be easy fixed by, by a government and by a minister. Ministers do have power. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a question to them if they, they are, if they feel the pain and suffering that refugees are going through day by day. And if they, are, if they have a sense to apply their power to make life tiny bit easier for, for thousands of refugees that have suffered for so long. Yeah, yeah, Zaki. And um, uh, these are, I think it's a, a, a powerful point that it's, you know, these are, there's layers and that um, these, uh, it doesn't all have to be, well, it, it, there are easier layers than others and there's just no excuse for not doing the easy ones right now. So you've got the, we've, we've had a, uh, it's been my privilege to be part of this conversation and how we always end the podcast is um, now you can, you've got people by the shoulders and you're about to grab them and yell at them to do one thing, the listeners. Um, uh, so you've got both of their headphones um, in each of your hands. So what's one thing that you want the, uh, the listeners to, to go away and, and do today? Um, uh, I'll, I'll start with you, um, Zachy, if that's okay. Be happy and enjoy your freedom that you have. Powerful, powerful. Um, Anthea? Yeah, it's, it's hard to beat that kind of excellent advice, Zaki. But, yeah, I, I, it's such a, yeah, do that and enjoying, in enjoying your freedom kind of think, think about uh, the ways in which other freedoms, people's freedom and, and access to justice might in, indeed uh, as many political philosophers have told us, enhance your own experience of your freedom and and uh, the the privileges for those for people who have, I mean, citizenship is an imperfect thing as we know, but who have the privileges at least of citizenship. Um, and at, at a very practical level, I, I do think it's a great time for political engagement around refugee and asylum seeker justice. And Zaki leads the way um, in in relation to that and campaigning and and speaking out and. Uh, that many people who have um, who need to put far less on the line, uh, engaging with local members around small things. Uh, look, I'm, uh, I, I know the the disappointments of doing that, having kind of lived through many many years of bipartisan policy on refugee and asylum seeker issues. Uh, but at least to kind of engage in in your local community around uh, these uh, smaller steps, I think is important. Um, and that includes with refugee-led organisations uh, and, and the work that they're doing uh, in different parts of Australia and around federal politics as well. Thank you, Anthea, and thank you both for the conversation. It's been my privilege. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been great.